this never felt unrecoverable. It never felt like the awful thing that everyone made it seem. Look, I think with using something like comedy or just, yeah, refusing to treat it like cancer, it's the ultimate like genre flip. Like it's the ultimate 180 reversal to, to take something so horrible and to bring a little bit of levity and light to it. Like, I think that's, that is, that's magic. That's what, like, that's why we're here. That's why I don't really, I don't like these words, like healing or recovery. Cause I don't know if that's what it is. It's just like, be you, you have to own it. There's not really another choice. This is a very different episode than any that I've done on the Depth Work podcast and very different from most conversations on childhood sexual abuse. This is an intimate discussion between one of my best friends of 15 years. We have a common lived experience of being molested as children, and we get very, very honest about what it looks like and what it takes to come out the other side as healthy adults. Jagger is an LA-based comedy writer and a goofball who has learned to use her sense of humor as alchemy. So if you're wondering whether you should be laughing or crying, that's exactly the point. We use a lot of curse words, so put in headphones if little ones are around. And while we don't go into graphic detail, we also intentionally don't treat this topic with fragility. So please care for yourself if this is a topic as close to your heart as it is to ours. Listen to your body and honor your own experiences. Jagger and I also have really important differences in our stories, such as the age at when it happened, who harmed us, what kind of support we did or didn't have, and much more, which is important to bear in mind as we all have different stories. If you want to hear my personal story on this topic, you can listen to the full episode number eight on this podcast. But today, you're going to hear the very real, not often talked about aspects of sexual abuse, such as the horrible reactions that people and therapists tend to have, the connections between age, gender, and power in society, whether or not adult sexuality and kink is impacted by childhood sexual abuse, having a commitment to healthy relationships, healthy sex, having a relationship to your personal power and pleasure, how to disclose to partners and friends, what happens when you're re-traumatized, and most importantly, taking radical responsibility for yourself and your life. Hi, I'm Jasmine Russell, and this is Depth Work, a holistic mental health podcast. This is a space for those who love to dive into the underbelly, to revel in the mystery, question assumptions about what's normal, play in the both and, and honor the wide range of human emotion. As a complex trauma survivor, holistic counselor, and co-founder of a mental health training institute, I've learned that there is immense wisdom in our pain, and that what we call crazy is just what we are not yet willing to understand and explore. I'm so glad that you're here, so let's dive in. Jagger, welcome to the Depth Work Podcast. Hey. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you because, you know, one of the things that I really love and value about you. We've known each other for quite some time. And there's just so many things that you say that have immense weight and depth and that are really difficult to talk about, but you bring such a quality of humor and lightheartedness to it. So thanks. I mean, how else are you going to overshare about getting molested if you can't make it funny? (laughs) I don't know, like, don't waste people's time. (laughs) (laughs) And look, like right off the bat, I'm just going to say like that. I'm going to call it what I want to call it. I'm not going to use the like therapy terms of like childhood sexual abuse, but maybe sometimes I'm going to do what I want. And that's kind of the point. (laughs) Like, I think the point of why we're here today is that like, we're going to use whatever language we want. I'm going to swear. I'm going to make jokes uh, because the whole point is to stop treating it like cancer 
because uh, it's just sort of a fact about us. It's a fact that you and I have in common as a shared experience. And yeah, I mean, like, let's talk about why, like, why, why are we here? Why are we talking about that today? We're here because I think there's this ick factor around this subject that prevents people from getting specific. Cause it's just one of those things where like, as soon as it's out, as soon as it's out there, everyone in the room just like goes stiff and gets all tensed up. And it's just like, Ooh, that's like the gross thing that we don't like. Um, and that's fine. Cause I think that's like a good protective human reaction, but it's pretty unhelpful when it's your lived experience. I think the ick factor about this subject prevents like real discussions about it, even with therapists, even with people who are supposed to be mental health professionals. There's just this like rigid sort of like rhetoric that they stick to when they're talking about it as if there's one true way to deal with it or face it or whatever. And I just want to like take all that, take all that apart because I'm done with it. Totally. I mean, we treat this topic with so much fragility and I, I understand why, but if you've worked with people who are survivors of sexual abuse or childhood sexual abuse or molestation, any of those things, you know that we are anything but fragile and people are processing this in so many different ways. And part of what I love about you is that you do it through humor and through being really grounded and just being super open and honest about it. So yeah, I, I used to think or possibly still think that it's kind of self-indulgent and uh, sort of like egocentric to just, oh, you want to talk about your trauma, but like, <laughs> now, like, I do think about a younger self that would have benefited from hearing a conversation like this because it's, because the our intention here today is to not treat it like cancer and what, yeah, like what did very young me, like want to hear, need to hear. And like, what would have helped counter so much of the stuff that I was hearing that was really harmful and like actively held me back from whatever you want to call it, like healing, recovery, acceptance, whatever. Yeah. If we can help someone who is kind of sick and tired of, of reading and watching and listening to content that just tells you that your life is over and this is the worst thing that's ever going to happen to you and you're never going to get over it, then like, Let's like breathe a little light into that because uh, that's not true. It's not true. It's not true. Also, this is a conversation that you and I have been having for like 15 years. And I think that we're finally like like about like a year or so ago, we were finally ready. And before we get started, I do want to mention like why talking about talking to you about this has been so helpful, like my whole life. And part of it has to do with like your relationship with humor and your relationship to like not being offended by stuff that could be offensive. Um, because I, I'm recalling a time, like the moment that I knew I wanted to be friends with you forever, we were in high school and we were having lunch with that, the, you know, who the kid that was eventually expelled for, so I had a giant crush on, <laughs> you had a giant crush on, anyway, um, and we were like sitting and having lunch and he, he just like out of nowhere, like looked at you and asked you if you masturbate with your left hand, which has three fingers. And the fact that like all you did was you just cracked up and I saw the look on your face and you were just so humored by the fact that he would ask that and you weren't offended and you weren't off put by it at all. And you like wanted to answer his questions sincerely, but it cracked you up. And I think I just, I kind of knew right then I was like, I can talk to her about anything. (laughs) I love that moment. And I love that that's the moment that you knew. I mean, it's true. Yeah. Like, 
people have such interesting questions and there's so many questions that we're afraid to ask because we're afraid that people are going to be offended. So we're throwing that out the window during yeah. this podcast. And then episode. it's important. It's a, that's the, I think if you're going to talk about this, you gotta have, if you don't have a sense of humor and if you don't, if, if you let yourself be easily offended, this is not a conversation for people who are really easily offended because ultimately we're talking about ownership. We're talking about ownership and, um, being bigger than the things that happened to you and looking at it in a way that actually is regenerative and creative and helpful uh, and empowering and may not align, may not align with whatever you're conventionally told that you're supposed to do when things like this happen. And let's stop following this like step-by-step process that we're told that it's like, if this happened to you, then you got to do A, B, and C, or you're just in denial or re-traumatizing yourself. And it's like, that's not true. (laughs) There's infinite, it's, it's all choose your own adventure. It's all infinite everything. (laughs) Yes. Choose your own adventure. Whatever makes you feel the most in ownership of your experience. I mean, that's what I love about your perspective on it. Part of your ownership, it strikes me, is is your humor, your writing, your comedy, your creativity. Well, thank you. I like making you, I like making you laugh. You know, you were the first person that I ever like, I could, I was like, oh, I can make people laugh. It was with you. You are sincerely the funniest person that I know. Oh, dude. Well, thanks. (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, let's do it. Let's, let's find some humor in the most fucked up thing that has happened to us both. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Okay. Well, important. This is really a really important starting point. Um, so before I was sexually abused as a child, I was already masturbating. And I think that's really significant. I think it's really significant in how I process the experience because I already had a relationship with my own body and my own pleasure. And I felt very in control of it. And I think that that is the reason that my self-esteem and my relationship to receiving pleasure stayed intact even though I have a lot of trauma. So that's a really important, like foundational truth that I know. And also that's something like when I've, when I've told this story, like you lose about 30% of people when you say stuff like that. Cause that's just like, the people don't want to think that's true or they think it's gross or they think it's not possible. And I had to like accept that <laughs> even do, when I talked to therapists. Do you mean, you mean just the fact that children have a relationship to their own pleasure and masturbate? Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, there's, there's just people who are like, that's not possible. Like, like it's the gross out. Like, again, it's like, there's so many ick factors that don't just have to do with the abuse. Just like the, like, (laughs) there's a lot of ick factors involved and that's one of them. And you're just going to lose people if you say that like it is, or I've had people assume that it's like, oh, well, like you probably weren't like, you probably, like something bad probably happened that you don't remember. Like people start to mess with your story, which, you know, we'll talk about later. Um, And that's one of them where it's like, that's where I was coming from before this happened. I know that for a fact. I remember it clearly. And also this, the, 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 the narrative that I'm about to tell about it is one that I have been telling for years. And I can't wait to tell you the different reactions from therapists that I've had to, to the way that I, the words that I use, the way that I tell this story, the way that I say that I feel. Um, and it's just, yeah, that's kind of why we're here too, where it's like, why do so many people question the experience that you know that you had? Yeah. Is it because, and I guess it's because it's a kid because they think that you don't, that there's no way that you would actually know or that you're like, your memory couldn't be fully formed, but there's just so 
I mean, that's a big one, honestly. Like I've gotten that. My own father, who was the person who sexually abused me as a child, literally said the words, you were three years old. I didn't think that you would remember. Yeah. That's the other thing. Like I, people really underestimate like the processing power of the child's brain. Um, And that's a lot of the like hurdles that I've had to cross with people where it's like, no, I did, I did feel this way or like, this is how I intellectualized it. And yeah, I don't know. There's just a lot of assumptions there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's also this, I think there's something that happens in people's brains and this, it's this really subtle thing that I've noticed where the moment that you mention things like childhood sexual abuse, they just like, they, they clench up and they go rigid and they just like their eyes glaze over and they think, well, there's only one true way to deal with that. And if you don't follow the exact like rules that you, that are, are prescribed to you, then you're, then you're in denial or whatever. And mm-hmm. I think that this is what I think. I think that it helps P it helps reinforce because the act is evil, right? Like abusing a child is evil and people need that to remain true because they don't want to question it. And you don't have to question it because it's just true. Right. But it's almost like People need you to not be okay from that experience to prove that it's a bad thing. And that if you are okay, it probably wasn't that bad or yes. didn't happen the way that you think it did. Right. That there's, it's just a, it's a math equation that doesn't make any sense. And they need you to not be okay because that justifies the fact that it's a bad thing. And they have to, it's this feedback loop of like, well, it's, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. And you just end up in their like perception spiral of what an experience can do to a person. And the fact that like, you might actually be okay. It, it's like, it threatens their perception of something that's bad and makes them think, Oh, well, maybe it's not so bad. And it's like, no, you're like the weird. Yeah. Okay. But what happened? Um, so I was sexually abused through most of elementary school. Um, probably started when I was seven or eight and ended when I was getting out of fifth grade. Uh, I was a school bus driver. I know zero points for originality. Um, <laughs> like, and it would only happen on field trips. So those were like five or six times a year. And it lasted like three, three ish years. The thing that I had to reckon with later and I didn't realize for like years was that I did res- like, I experienced pleasure during it. Um, like it did, it did feel good. And that th- there was a moment that I realized that much later that I'll talk about, but that was why as I got older and I was like trying to intentionally put myself in situations where I was like listening to other survivors or listening to other people talk about this. And I really didn't relate to what everyone was talking about, about how awful it felt and how horrible they felt. Cause I had so many good, I had so many good feelings, physical, mental, neurochemical that I associated with that experience that it took me a while to realize that when it was, that it was a bad thing. And that's, the physical act of that trauma is not something that stays with me. It doesn't haunt me. It doesn't affect my, like the, the way that I receive or give pleasure now, luckily, but I did it when it ended, uh, it ended. And then I went to, I went to a different school and I didn't think about it for like three years. And then at the end of eighth grade, we move again and I have to start taking the school bus from one district to another. And it doesn't even cross my mind that I could like encounter him. Like it just doesn't even, I don't even think about it. And the big moment is when I saw him again, but I was 
almost 14. I was almost a teenager. My body was really different. I had like really grown up and I saw him and we made eye contact and I could tell that he recognized me in the way that you can acknowledge another person when you look at them. And I could see that he didn't want me anymore because I was older. And that was heartbreaking. And let me just, I'm going to stop for a second because I want to talk about the word that I just used. I just used the word heartbreaking. And that word, like, this is a point where therapists have like stopped me in this story. And they're like, they basically talk me out of it. That they're like, you're, you weren't heartbroken. This wasn't a relationship. Like you were abused. And I look, I, I did, I tried that on for size for a while. I tried on the whole, like, yeah, like you were a victim. This was awful. Like this person did horrible things for you. Like, sure. I know that. And I also like, I, I tried to stay in that place for years because it seemed like the right thing to do according to therapists. And it just, that just doesn't help me and it doesn't give me anything and it's not regenerative and it's not creative. And when I reframe my experience with this man as a relationship and as something that did bring me like intense emotional pain and and heartbreak that was more about, it was more about like not being wanted anymore. Like it felt like a breakup. It felt like, oh, I don't like, he doesn't want me anymore. Like he wants somebody younger. And then this was around the time, like within like a six or eight month period, uh, I'm watching my mom lose her job because she was, she was on camera talent for local news. And now she's a woman over 40 and she's losing her job because they're going to replace her with someone younger and her fiance leaves her for a younger woman. So that happens at the same time as my experience where I'm associating like age and youth and desirability with my own experience. And I see it happen to my mom. And all I can see as a woman, like looking down, like the barrel of my life is that this is going to happen over and over again to me. And that what I was experiencing was like a microcosm of what my mom was experiencing. And that I am inevitably going to feel this exact same way. Again, I'm going to feel not wanted because I'm not attractive anymore because I'm not young. And that is where that's where the trauma is not on the like logistical, physical touching that happened. And that's where I kind of started to like argue with therapists in my twenties when I finally went, which it was like, I'm, they, they kept wanting to redirect me towards the physical abuse. And I'm like, that's just not the part that hurts. Yeah. It's just not, that's not what hurts. The part that hurts is the weird over-intellectualized hyper-complex like thesis that I wrote in my brain about age and gender and power. Yeah. (laughs) Which sexual abuse is always about, but I think what you're really pointing out here too, is that the, the emotional pain with sexual abuse. So there's like, I don't remember the exact statistic, but most people who were sexually abused as a child, it was with someone that they knew someone that they were close with. And so eventually the the pain is usually not a pain of something like sexual happens happening, but it's the pain of like the either a breach in the connection with that person. Or I remember having, you know, my own association with this of the pain for me was that I felt like I had to allow myself to be harmed by this person in order to stay connected with them. So, you know, no matter the scenario, it's, it's an attachment pain. Like it's like an emotional pain. It so often is not about the physical aspect. Yeah. And then like 
later on when I did start doing my own research, which I did, and I'll talk more about when I started learning about like the neurochemistry of, of that. And the fact that like, essentially when you're sexually abused, you're like, you're kind of like twilight style, like imprinting on that person. <laughs> like, yeah. The way that your brain is like, all of this stuff is firing. You're like, this is attachment. Yep. Yeah. But essentially the, the pain in it that I want to talk about that a lot of therapists are like, that's not the right thing to talk about is that my brain created this really intense connection between like youth and desirability that got like really academic in a very like Jagger specific way. And the thing is, is like that only gets reinforced culturally. Like it is true on some level, it is true. And like, there is a desire factor to youth and that's not something that you and I can ever change. And that's, there's just a hard truth to that. I don't know what my experience would have been like if the other shoe hadn't dropped like that. Like if I hadn't, if all that had happened was the stuff when I was like really young and then I never saw him again, I think that would have turned into something really different. And there was something about seeing him again, feeling like I wasn't desirable anymore because I was older, like that changed it. That changed my relationship to the thing. And I just don't know that there's this word of like, wow, like what would have if it had only been the first half of that story, I think my relationship to it would be really, really different. Um, Cause I feel like I found out something that you're just not supposed to find out until later, which is kind of like the core of like getting molested, right? It's like, Oh, like, yeah, this is the thing. And like, this is how we can make each other feel. And like, you're probably not supposed to find that out yet. But the thing that I felt like I found out is what not just the body stuff, which again, like I kind of had autonomy over already because I was masturbating and I felt like there's never, I've never questioned that kind of autonomy. Um, but I found out what the like physical sexual rejection felt like. And that you're not, supposed to, you're not supposed to know what that's like until you're an adult. And that's the kind of thing where it's like, yeah, seeing that he didn't want me anymore is the thing that hurt. Do you remember how else that impacted you at that time? Just in terms of like, I imagine, you know, young you being afraid to grow up, to get older, to be an adult, to, you know, just like that relationship with age and time. Do you remember how you attempted to navigate it then? It just felt like I knew that I was going to die a thousand tiny deaths over the course of my life as a woman. I don't know. There's just such an, it felt so inevitable. It felt like this thing where I'm like, I, you hear, you hear older women talk about it, right? I mean, you, you, oh, you yeah. Hear yeah. You, it's something you figure out when you're like 40 and you're like, oh, like all of my male friends are dating women in their early twenties, which again, like there's nothing we can do about that. <laughs> like, and there is a sort of, there is kind of a biological reason for that. And like, I don't actually, I don't blame men for that. And it's just not, it's just the like tragic, like graph, like graph chart going in the opposite direction where it's like men get more valuable over time and women get less valuable over time. And it's, it's, there's no point where those things meet. <laughs> yeah. So the, you know, I did this, I, I also instantly like pretty quickly, I was more immediately concerned with like the social and cultural implications of what happened to me than any of the personal stuff. Like it went straight right. to that. And I even like, I did, a, I did a book report, uh, in the sixth grade on, it was a fictional book about child sex trafficking. And the fact that like nobody, like my teachers and my mom, like didn't ask like, what's going on. 
Yeah. Um, like no one questioned that, but I did, like, I was immediately more concerned about like, what does this mean about my world? Like, what does this mean about the world around me? And for a while, I remember thinking like other people, oh, like classic mistake, people just must not know that this is happening. Right. And then I found out that like, we do know, and that it's like a global problem and that we're not really doing anything about it. Like think about the fact that like the, like, I mean, just like the, tr- the trade, the, the, the international connections that we have to countries where like th- girls are married when they're like seven or eight years old. And like, we've just decided that there's nothing we can do about that. Like I, when I realized that I was like, oh, wow. And that is kind of where, that's where my distrust of, of, of things kind of came in. Cause I didn't really feel that dis, I didn't feel that much distrust towards even my abuser or other adults necessarily. But when I realized it was like, oh, this is like a widespread thing that just happens and we can't, we, we haven't found a solution and like the grownups haven't figured it out. That's when my distrust really grew in the world. Wow. What do you think it was that like really, I mean, I know you had several examples of this exact phenomenon happening around you at the same time. That makes sense. What was it that like allowed you to essentially say like the distrust? Because there, there's always a betrayal that's involved in sexual abuse, but it's not always a betrayal of the person who's actually doing that. Sometimes it's feeling the betrayal, like in my own story towards family members who knew and did nothing or who heard my story and basically didn't believe me. But for you, it sounds like the distrust was in society, like this is institutionally and societally sanctioned abuse. We're allowing this to happen. Yeah. And that's, that's a challenging thing. Cause I think it's, it's a pretty abstract kind of distrust. <laughs> um, and yeah, and also the fact that it happened to me at school, which is a place that you're supposed to be safe. And I had so many other experiences as a child in locations and situations where you probably shouldn't put a child. I mean, like, just like every, you know, I grew up walking around a news station at night, completely unattended and nothing ever happened. And or going to like, like all of the metal concerts that I went to, like the corn concert, the Slayer concert, Lamb of God concert, like every, all of these situations where it's like, maybe a child shouldn't be here. And I was actually safe in those places, but I wasn't safe in the place where I was supposed to be the safest. So something that did help me put a couple puzzle pieces together about my experience was uh, in 2018, there was the USA Gymnastics team scandal with the doctor that molested all the, all the girls his name was Larry Nasser. And that was the first time I ever saw there was like mainstream media coverage of childhood sexual abuse. And the, the judge who was in the trial, let, let every single girl have as much time as she wanted and to, to like talk, talk about it and, uh, talk to him on the stand basically. And when I listened to that, the specificity that they went into about how it happened because one of the things that was like confusing to people about his style of abuse was that they, these girls were in the same room as their parents when it would happen. And that blew my mind. Cause I was like, Oh, yeah. that's what happened to me because I was there. It would happen in the presence of other adults who were definitely safe. And I remember, like, I can remember like looking at them while it was happening and I'm like, they don't know what's, ha-. and it's because there's the like really sneaky sleight of hand, like angles, like the fact that it can happen in plain fucking sight and no one has any idea. So those trials and like listening to those girls describe it and 
and getting into the details that like make people ick out and kind of get uncomfortable. It's like, oh no, no, that was really helpful because now I understand what happened. Now I can understand like the, the logistics of what went down and it makes me feel less confused. Yeah, absolutely. I actually would say the majority of people that I've heard talk about their experiences, and this is true for myself as well, and um, other people in my family who were sexually abused by my father, is that part of why they didn't say anything is because it happened at the dinner table or like, you know, just like off in a corner somewhere or somewhere that seemed like you know, when you're a kid, you do, you look to the other adults to see if they're reacting. And if they're not reacting, then you think maybe on some level, like, well, maybe this is okay. I don't know. It can be such a mind fuck. Um, there was also a creepy doc. Like I also got molested by a doctor, but that's, I mean, that one's so small. I remember when that happened, I was just like, God damn it. You got me. Um, and that (laughs) one wasn't, (laughs) Isn't that so true though? It's like, you have this bigger trauma and then it's like, oh yeah. And I was also like raped that one time and molested that other time, but there's no, yeah. I mean, there wasn't, there wasn't a big betrayal in that one. It was just like, oh, that's fucking annoying. But it was another, yeah. But like, think about like doctor in school, like those are the places where it's like, this is where you're, these are the institutions where you are safe. And then all of these other weird kind of like creative or like mostly adult, like spaces designed for adults that my parents like brought me into on purpose or because it had to do with their work where actually I was completely safe. And also the fact that, look, there was one adult that did something bad to me, but the truth is, is there were so many safe adults in my life. And that's a pretty, that's probably significant for, for me is that, um, it just, I mean, all my, my, my parents, friends and coworkers and the mentors that I had and the teachers that I had, like there's so much safety in that. So that kind of, if it was a very interpersonal distrust, I feel like that got, I was really surrounded and padded in this like lifeboat of like other healthy relationships with adults, which is really good. But the one thing I didn't do when I was a kid was tell anyone that this was happening. And I've put a lot of thought into whether I regret that or not. And part of me does because I think about the other people that he probably harmed. And that sucks. But it's also not my responsibility. And I think that trying to communicate this as a child would have been both confusing and I don't know if I would have been able to withstand the interrogation of adults about it because part of that process, which now I've learned of as an adult is you have to retell that story. A lot of times you have to go over the details over and over and over again. And I don't think that at that age I had the language or the like conviction to stick with what I knew was true, especially if I had to juggle the emotional reactions of seeing other adults respond to this information, like seeing the look on my parents' faces as I describe it. Like, I think I would have started swerving and trying to like make it not seem as bad or change the story. Like that's where children aren't necessarily unreliable narrators, but they're very easily influenced. So if I had witnessed other people's reactions, I might've changed my details, if that makes sense. And I also think that having to do something like 
make a formal accusation or like go to some sort of trial. And like, probably they probably would have had to take me out of that school and uproot, like my whole life would have been uprooted from this one thing. And I think that would have felt really defining and it would have made this sort of like domino effect on the rest of my life. Whereas like dealing with it alone in the way that I did actually helped me like localize the pain of it and just focus on it on my own time instead of in a way that would have impacted everything else and would have, it it would have become so much more a part of my identity. I don't think that would have been a good choice. I just think it would have affected everything in a way that would have been a lot harder to recover from sadly. So, but do I think people should disclose and like name abuse when it happens? Like, absolutely. Like (laughs) I don't, I would never want to discourage someone from doing that. But when I do look at my own experience, I'm glad that I didn't because I was able to look at this in a way that helped me and it didn't become about anybody else. Um, yeah. And it's the pain became this sort of like abstract, like global, like, I can't believe that everyone that, that we can't have a, that we haven't found a solution. And it also, I think when you have a really abstract sense of distrust to the world, like I don't have somebody to blame. I mean, yeah, I can blame this man. I can blame the school district for hiring him or whatever, but like, I don't have a point. I can't point it at anyone. And I kind of have the opposite thing of where maybe you would conventionally think, oh, like you felt really powerless as a child and now you feel more powerful as an adult. Actually, (laughs) interestingly enough, I felt, I feel like I was more powerful when I was a kid and I feel less powerful as time goes on, weirdly. Even though that, I mean, not, I mean, I feel, I feel better. I feel more self-aware. I feel healthier, but I feel, yeah, I feel more confident, but I feel less valued. Mm -hmm. It's not like any of this ever stops. And that's the the part that kind of has to just keep getting worked on. What do you think? What do you, what do you think? What do you think the cure is? You know, what you just said is so fundamentally true about our society. It is placed in every institution. It is socially sanctioned in every kind of way all the way down to what you brought up in terms of child marriages. I think the only thing that we do have control over that would be a cure is to change where we place our value. Like, what do we value ourselves for? I don't know. I mean, I'm reminded of when, you remember when I came to see you at NYU Mm -hmm. and when we were in college and we went to the Museum of Sex. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? And like that, I remember loving that. I, I was like, I loved being there. I loved that exhibit. And then the very last part of the museum was they did like, you had to walk through and it was like, what are the most searched terms for porn? And there's all this stuff. There's all this kinky stuff. And then it ends with youth. Mm-hmm. And I, we left and I feel like I didn't say anything for like an hour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause I was like, that can't be how that ends. So I don't know. I don't know if there's anything we can do about it. I mean, so this to me is where it comes back to mentors and mentorship. I think the most powerful, the most powerful women in my life who have changed the way that I think about so much are people that inhabit and embody the crone archetype. What's the the crone? crone? Like Um, crony, like as in like like, a woman, (laughs) like a spinster? (laughs) Like maiden mother crone. Yeah. 
The women that have been the most impactful to me are the women who are not married, who maybe have kids, but that's not like the part of their life that matters, (laughs) who are doing whatever the fuck they want, who are over 55. And like, it's, there's so much wisdom there. There's so much power there. And the biggest thing that all of them have in common is that they are completely unapologetic about their power. And it does not seem, I mean, they're aware of the public perception of them or all of the the critique and the bias and the hate and the violence towards them. They don't give a fucking shit. Yeah. Yeah, we we need that. And we still haven't really done it. There isn't really the like respecting the elder thing like we don't we don't really do that you know like we take our old people in this society and we like shove them into old folks homes we don't listen to them um but that value yeah there is something in me that like really trusts and values that kind of wisdom that kind of mentorship from women and I don't really have that right now I would I would love to talk to a woman over 60 who could just like get real with me and like be super (laughs) trauma-informed and think positive and like anti-judgment that would be the best and I think like if it was me, if I was like the elder woman talking to myself, part of what I would say would be like, if you are a highly traumatized person and you do not aspire to God tier self-awareness about what you're doing and why you're doing it, everything will hurt, especially the things that feel good. And there's no fault in that but it is responsibility. The benefit to that, I think, is that that's where a lot of the introspection comes in, where it's like, okay, if I can't change this thing, if this thing is bad, then like what's going on with my internal experience and how can I get really introspective about it in a way that's, that's going to make me less scared. And that's really the importance of like knowing what your deal is. And it just got me, it made me know it. It made me like, it forced my own, my in, the intimate relationship that I have with what happened. It kind of like enforced that on me. And I was like, I have to think about this deeply because this is the only way. Wait, say more about that. What was your reflection process like? Like, how did it kind of dig out your inner world? I mean, I guess I sort of want to talk about like the processing, the process of like when I was in high school and I was like, started to, I I started to want to understand what happened to me scientifically. So I was Googling this in like 2010 as like a teenager alone. And what I found initially was like all just like peer reviewed scientific articles that basically say like, statistically, like you're fucked. Your relationships are fucked. You have an incurable kind of cancer. Here's your death certificate. Um, and you're and those, more likely to have an autoimmune disease and you're more likely to have every kind of mental illness that exists in the DSM. And you're like, it just keeps going. Yeah. The autoimmune, that one's crazy. The like 90% of childhood abuse survivors that have like an autoimmune disease is fucking crazy. Like the yeah. fact that your body kind of like attacks it. So, and I didn't know that that's what a gluten allergy is. I didn't know that celiac was an autoimmune disease yeah. until I was diagnosed with it. And I was like, wow. Um, yeah, but so, you know, in my little like Jagger way, I, I, I chose to like do my own research, (laughs) which sounds bad, but I'm glad I did it. And also like to anyone who's thinking, well, Jagger, maybe you shouldn't have been like Googling things alone when you were a teenager. Maybe you should have gotten professional help. Well, guess what? I did several years later and you know what happened? All they did was regurgitate the same shit that I read. (laughs) So 
at least I got some time and space alone with it to analyze it in my own way. And so I noticed that like the, the conclusions that were in these, these, these scientific studies about childhood sexual abuse were, were, were bad. <laughs> like the conclusions in, in the abstract that you read beforehand were like, you're fucked. But a lot of the actual data was really helpful. And so when I started to read about, again, like what happens neurochemically, and it's like what happens when you, when you have an orgasm and your cortisol levels are just spiking because you're having a traumatic experience and you're nine years old, like that's, that's your limbic system getting wired. And it's essentially like a brain chemical drug combo that you're probably going to get addicted to. And that's where like, I started to like, there's some things I borrow, you know, I'm not like, I'm not going to shit on therapy completely. I'm not going to shit on psychology completely. Cause I've, I borrowed what works for me and I leave what doesn't. And part of what helped was, yeah, like learning about like complex PTSD yeah, and the sort of like way that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember one of them where the, the conclusion in the study was basically like your brain is scrambled. <laughs> And, but then you read about how and why, and you're like, oh, it is. Um, and that's what complex PTSD is. Then you learn about this thing called neuroplasticity and cognitive restructuring. And you realize that, oh, like you can rewire it. It's just work. Um, and and post-traumatic growth. Yeah. And I do remember, I've, I remember like feeling at times where I can, like, I swear to God, I could literally feel the wires in my brain, like firing and crossing in ways that I'm like, this shouldn't be happening. I'm like, I shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. And sort of the, the high, I, I, I kind of chased that high for a while. Like in my early twenties, like I would chase experiences where it's like, I want to be like, I want to come really hard, but I also want to be like really stressed out. Um, and that's a really potent, intense drug essentially actually. Okay. So in terms of like re-traumatizing or triggered or whatever, which I don't, I still really, I still don't really know what being triggered means, but <laughs> I don't get it. Cause it doesn't happen. Like that doesn't happen. Like, I don't know, like that doesn't happen to me. I don't, I don't, I don't have flashbacks. I don't have like reminders. It's all just, it, it, it just turned into this like weird self private thesis about like age and power in the world. And it's so, it's so much more academic than it is physical. So I did at one point, yeah, like early, early twenties, I saw this guy, I saw this play, he's an actor. And immediately I was like, oh, he looks exactly like the guy that molested me. Like exactly. And it was like one of those moments where I'm like, I'm on my path and there's something that's been placed in my path. And like, am I going to turn or am I, am I going to like run towards it? And it didn't feel like, I was like, I have to do it. I'm like, I have to fuck this guy. (laughs) He did. And it was really intense. It was really, it was good. It also like, unfortunately, unfortunately, but like he was really on a, like a technical level, just like really good at sex. And I'm like, oh great. Now I have to like untangle those things. <laughs> so that was like, fuck. But I remember I left his house and I like get in my car and I like, as if there's like a camera outside my window, I look to my left and I say to myself, I need to go to therapy. <laughs> And I did. Um, and that's, that's kind of when I started going. Um, Wait, before you go into that though, I think that's a really good point about something coming across your path in the universe, something that could, could, or does remind you about the sexual abuse and learning how to engage in that in a way that allows you to perhaps 
re-engage with the trauma, but from a grounded place of seeking healing from it. And this is a super fine line, but I will say honestly as well, even though, again, so much of my experience didn't really manifest sexually with a close long-term romantic partner, I did decide to re-engage with aspects of the abuse in a really healing environment. Um, For example, for me, it always used to happen throughout my childhood when I was sleeping or at night. And so that kind of became like a little bit of a desire for me in sex to essentially pretend like I was sleeping or like I wasn't totally conscious and to kind of role play in that way that actually wound up being super healing. And again, not necessarily on a sexual level, because that's not where the the pain or the trauma was, but on an emotional level to be more comfortable in my body or more comfortable in that relationship. So, yeah. yeah. But but you gotta like, I don't, I don't think you know that you're intentionally re-traumatizing until you do it. And then you're in it and you're like, oh, I'm doing that. Mm -hmm. And then, and then once you do, you kind of like cross that line, you know where it is and you're like, okay, like, I'm either going to do that intentionally again or, or not. So I I think that you just don't like, you don't know if you're doing that until you definitely do it. And like you and I both know for a fact at this point in our lives where it's like, oh yeah, like I went all the way down that road. Like (laughs) I went there and now, you know, like how not to, or if you, I guess if, if you want to, you can do it again. But that was like, yeah, that was important. And I did it. And I was like, now I feel like, okay, well now I know what that's like. And now I can try other things that maybe aren't like as like mine wasn't, it, he just looked like him. It wasn't, it wasn't like, there was no reenactment. It wasn't, that's, that's never been my thing. And I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to pursue that. But it was just this sort of like visual aspect of like who he reminded me of, which is like a weird, again, like, how could I not, like just, you know, given the choice between like doing an intense thing or not doing an intense thing, I'm going to do the intense thing every time. And it wasn't. I mean, that that happens outside of like abuse context too. Like I've definitely had a rebound with a person that had like basically the same name as my ex or like looked like the same person. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do that Um, as humans. It's (laughs) okay. But but was there ever a moment when you were doing that though, where you're like, oh wait, like I, I shouldn't go there or like, I'm not emotionally safe or I have to like check in with myself before I do this, like ever. There were definitely times where I felt unsafe and it did wind up triggering the like traumatic experience um, without my awareness or without me knowing, but it wasn't necessarily that that person or that thing or that situation was even necessarily reminiscent of. No, no, because it's not them because it's because it's not them. It's you. Yeah. 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 That's, and that's the thing I think that like the, the takeaway as, as much as I'm going to criticize some aspects of therapy, like the takeaway from complex trauma that I, that does seem important is like that you can like perceive threats and harm where there is not harm. And if yeah. you suddenly feel really unsafe and it kind of comes out of nowhere, like that's you. And that's a, that's, that's responsibility. That's the responsibility of knowing what your deal is and like what's going on with you. And the fact that you have to know how you feel about everything which is almost impossible as a person, yeah. but you have to know where it's coming from and you have to know that it's the like, what's going on with me in, internally and what's actually happening externally. And that's what I think that like you and I both like that, that's why this, this kind of like introspective 
work on thinking about this is so important because you have to know where your shit ends and somebody else begins. And because I think also what we don't talk about enough is trauma survivors. Like a lot of the literature is so focused on our fragility that we don't talk a lot about the ways that we can actually do things that are harmful or emotionally violent to other people because of the ways that we, you know, have been trained to be hypervigilant because of the trauma or because of complex PTSD or any of these other things. There are ways that I've definitely hurt people, particularly Mm -hmm. romantic partners because Mm -hmm. of fear, hypervigilance, seeing, you know, seeing harm when it wasn't there, but because of my own emotional or physical response, so I really like your idea of, um, or the the concept of radical self-accountability. Like that is important. I mean, it, you're, I'm talking like God tier self-awareness. Like if you want to, something happened, I think, because I read and heard so much negative reinforcement about like, you're fucked, you're fucked, you're fucked. And like, you're never going to be okay. And like, it's just all doom and gloom. Like something in me just like, I was like, you know what? not only is it going to be okay, it's going to be fucking great. And that like, I have remained so like committed to that, to like having good sex and like having relationships that are actually healthy, but like that's on you. Yes. That is on you. And you want to offload trauma because you don't want to carry it. It's fucking heavy and you don't want it, but your therapist and your boyfriend and your friends, they can't carry that for you. It's yours. So like get in there and investigate the shit out of it and know yourself all the way in and out. Because if you don't, you're going to get hurt, probably not on purpose. Yeah. It wasn't your fault, but it is your responsibility. I've said that to myself so many times. That's the risk. The therapist thing that like I counted and I, I saw six therapists before one that actually helped me. And the thing that they would all, like, I just felt all the stuff they led me back to, like, where they were, like, guiding me, they were leading me back into a place where I actually felt powerless and, like, essentially, like, the experience was a reason or, like, an excuse to be unstable or, like, have relationships that sucked. I'm like, why are you leading me there? Like, don't you want to help? Yeah. (laughs) Like, okay. So then, like, I saw six therapists in a row that were all kind of like something bad happened to you. And I'm like, no shit. Like, like, why do you think I'm here? Like, like, what are you? Yeah. Like, that's not helpful. And, um, yeah. Or like, you know, I would, I would, I would retell the narrative that I told earlier and they would like be like, well, it's actually not like this, like this. And I'm like, (laughs) and finally, like, I guess if there's one thing I was going to say to my, to my younger self or to like other people who have like ongoing childhood sexual abuse, like do not see a regular therapist. Do not just go see someone because they're a therapist. You need to find a trauma informed kink positive sex therapist. Yeah. Because when I did that, I saw this one. I only got to see her twice. It's it's so expensive, which is kind of funny in its own way. Like I don't have, I don't have $50 problems. I don't have $50 an hour problems. I have $200 an hour problems. (laughs) and that's how it is but so I couldn't I couldn't afford to see her more than twice but she changed my life and I I go back to like that was actually worth my time in a way that the other ones were kind of actively harmful and it was like the other therapists who weren't trauma-informed were like 
they were like adding time to the sentence that I already had. I'm like, now I got to do like two more years. I got to do, <laughs> and now I got six more months on the end of my sentence to like get over what you just said to me. But this- <laughs> what were some of the worst things that you got from them that they said to you? Uh, one therapist told me that like, if I was lucky that I would maybe have a healthy relationship one day. Oh my God. I'm not kidding. I can't, I wish I recorded all of them because I just couldn't believe it. And, but more than anything, more than the specific like sentences that they said, it was the, you talk about it and their eyes glaze over and they throw a bunch of bullet points at you that you've already read online. And they do the same thing. There's like a couple experiences that they'll do that. Like, like suicidal people, um, people with childhood sexual abuse trauma, like they just, it goes, you're having a conversation that's very personal and all of a sudden they just turn into a computer and it's like, you're just regurgitating shit at me. You're not listening to me. And you're, you're put, you're, you're, you're doing, they just do this. You know what I'm talking about? Because they're terrified. They're scared. And all they're of scared, a sudden there's the just like eyes, a shield up. But you know what I'm talking about with the like eyes glazing over thing. Yeah. Like you've seen it, right? Yeah. They just, I don't know. They just, and it's, but again, it's that if it's the like, Ooh, like gross. And like, yeah. nobody wants to talk about it. And like, nobody wants to hear like, not just the details, but like also how do they process it in a unique, it's just, it's just a one, they have a one size fits all solution that like, it's like, this is the way and you have to do it this way. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to do it this way. <laughs> and they hate yeah. that. So it was just mostly hearing that over and over again of like, uh, I, and that, but what that does, whether especially because it's, it's always like the really fucked up stuff that that's the, the like tactic that they're clearly like taught that you have to just say these things and you can't deviate from it. All that does is push you further and further and further and further into this corner until you're so isolated and you're like, I'm, I am screwed. And it just reinforces that. So that's why I can't, I kind of can't believe that that's still how people handle it. I also want to share a shitty therapist experience around childhood sexual abuse. I was seeing an art therapist And she was just telling me to make an art journal and collage. And I was done with that. (laughs) I had like a couple sessions of that. And then she referred me to her colleague who supposedly specialized, not necessarily in sexual abuse, but in trauma. And I went to see this guy. First of all, he had like a cowboy hat on. (laughs) I sat on his couch. And as one does, you, you regurgitate your whole story, right? Like, and it's exhausting. It's exhausting. I just want to say that to people who are looking for therapists. I get that it's so exhausting to tell your story to so many different people, not knowing if they're going to be able to hold it or handle it or approach you in a way that actually makes you feel seen and understood or laugh at your jokes or that. (laughs) And this guy, I finished my story and he just looks me dead in the eyes and he goes, you're not going to like what I have to say. And there's a part of me that got a little bit excited because I like therapists that are a little bit subversive or that, you know, like Mm -hmm. won't Mm -hmm. just tell you what you want to hear. And I I was gearing up, but what he had to say was, listen, you're, I think I was 19 at the time. You're 19. You have a, a whole life to live. And what I like the approach that I take to this requires that you have to forgive your father. You have to forgive your abuser and also doing this kind of like intensive trauma healing. um, I think it would be best for you if you waited until you were like maybe 35 or 45, had a stable job, had a more stable life, had a husband, and then you can come back and see me. And I was like, 
what the fuck is like, I'm obviously processing this right now, right now. It's not like trauma conveniently waits for me to have like this picture perfect life. And then I can go and process it with you. Like what? Yeah. And then also the premise that you have to start from a place of forgiveness is absurd. Like that's mm-hmm. absurd. Yeah. I don't know if that's necessary. I, I think that you could totally find peace without necessarily forgiving somebody. I think you can be like, fuck you. I'm at peace. Like, why not? <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, terrible, terrible therapist. I mean, it, it's, and listen, I think the point of why we're both saying this is, is not to blame therapists, hashtag not all therapists. It's, it's not like that. It's just that so many people don't understand unless they've lived it. And, and this is also a, a slight pitch for, you know, for talking to people who have a similar lived experience as you. This is why yeah. I was so drawn to peer counseling or peer support. That doesn't yeah. mean that every peer support worker is going to understand your experience or everyone who's experienced sexual abuse is going to understand you. Yeah. But there is really something to having to have navigated it yourself. Anyways. Yeah. I mean, there's even, because I have talked to a lot of other survivors. I hate that fucking word. <laughs> I hate that fucking word. I do whatever. It wasn't, it wasn't war. Also, I was coming a lot, you know, I was having a lot of orgasms, so it wasn't that bad. <laughs> anyway, like when I talk to other people who've been through it, like a lot of times I don't relate and I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry that that's how you feel. But like, this is how I feel. And, you know, even that can be helpful because like most of this, I don't know, most of like the aftermath or whatever you want to call it is having to just continually defend what's true for me. Yeah. Like that's what it is. It's never, it's never been about rebuilding comfort with like receiving pleasure. It's just turned into this weird introspective like defense of like no this is this is what's true for me this is what I feel um yeah because you know what the like the only way that I get triggered at this point in my life done so much healing like really nothing triggers me around this it it, honestly it feels like something so far away but the only thing that triggers me now is when and it could be about anything when someone doesn't believe me about something like when someone doesn't believe me yeah, or something believe random experience, it could like, be a, like a totally random other random. thing. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I don't know about getting triggered. Like, well, with me, it's so hard to tell where it's coming from because yeah, I mean like the rest of my like narrative, you know, we're okay. We stopped the narrative earlier when I was like 14 and I was like heartbroken because they didn't want me anymore. And I was like sad that it was over because I liked it, which I'm not in conflict with by the way. And the only person who ever like believed me that I was not in conflict with like the fact that I liked it and I was enjoying it was that trauma-informed sex therapist. Because what she asked me as I was telling this story, like she, she just like kind of interrupted me and she was like, did it feel good? And that's when I remembered that it did. Cause it took, I, I kind of, that part wasn't really in there for a while. And so later when I was like mid twenties and she asked that, like, it, it wasn't like I hadn't thought it, like that had always been true. I'm like, oh, that's what that thing is. Like, that's why it feels so different. That's why I don't relate to like these other people who are like so horrified and like hated it and didn't like, like, it's like, she said that. And that's the only thing anyone's ever asked me that like did the literal, like the mind exploding, like meme Mm -hmm. for me. 
because it had always been true. I was like, oh, and like my, my eye, I was like, there were like stars were exploding and like galaxies divided in my brain. And I was like, that's what it is like that. And that was such an important puzzle piece to put together. And she just did that with one question, one question versus six years of other therapists who like only made it worse. $200 worth it. $200 an hour. Yeah. That's yeah. Spend your money wisely. Well, let's, I mean, that, okay. that is a really revolutionary question because I can say I've worked with a lot of sexual abuse survivors and the there's, you know, everyone talks about the shame around it, but the biggest, what I can tell is the most intense thing for someone to open up to me about is to say, I, I think that there was a part of me that really liked it, which for some people in some context can get overcoupled with the idea of I liked it and therefore that means I am to blame or I am responsible for this or yeah. I deserved it or any of those things. And we have to really be able to separate those concepts. Yeah, I'm glad that that, I don't know, I never did that. I was like, and again, because I think that goes back to the fact that I was masturbating before it happened. And I knew what that feel like the feeling that I had with him. I was like, oh, this is, I'm like, oh, somebody else can do that to you. Cool. Mm -hmm. Anyway, let's go to class now. Like, I don't know. I just, it wasn't, it wasn't, I, I, I don't associate pleasure with, with him because I had it before then. And I think that that's, that's why, I mean, that's why I think that's such a big deal because I've, ne I've always been like, this feels good. And guess what? That's a, that's actually about me. Not that's like what I'm capable of doing and what I'm capable of like leaning into, but I want, there's two things I want to go back to. Okay. Cause we saw the story where I was 14. Right. But let's, let's finish the rest of rest of high school, which I know that, you know, what's coming, <laughs> which is that. Yeah. So, okay. I'm molested for years and then I'm like heartbroken because it ends and I wish it didn't. And then somewhere in there, my first kiss, by the way, was not consensual. I was in like Costa Rica for a, a school trip. Oh, why is everything bad happened to me? It was on a school trip, but I was like 13 and I was like getting off his bus and this guy just like grabs me by the face and kisses me. And I'm like, that was just my first kiss. Aww. And it was just, it was assault. So there's that. So there was like getting molested, didn't get my first kiss because that wasn't consensual. And then I have my first boyfriend for two years who I lose my virginity to and have sex with. And like, luckily that was pretty positive, but it ends with him killing himself. Yeah. So great. Now we're 18 and it's just like all of it, all of them, all of the major landmarks, all of the major like sexual romantic landmarks are just full on trauma. So like there's times where I, yeah. Like when I'm thinking about whatever getting triggered means, like it's actually not, it's never physical. And it's not about the sexual abuse, but there's the, the, the trauma betrayal of someone killing themselves <laughs> and the, the abandonment around that and the romantic, romantic trauma essentially, which is what that was. Um, and I think everyone has, like, I get that everyone's got some sort of romantic trauma by the time you're in like the middle of your life. But that one, I got to really Sometimes I really got to sit down and I'm like, wait, where is this going? Like, which one, like which major bucket is this like experience, like falling into, uh, and just, I mean, come, like, come on, like, really? Like sometimes I'm just like, really? Like, do you ever just sit with that? And you're like, did these things really happen to me? And like, do I really have to deal with this? Totally. I mean, I would say that was my <laughs> dominant attitude 
after my flashback memories at 17 was like, oh man, like this is gonna be, this is gonna be hard. Like, did I really need it? It's like, oh God. That, but that's what I mean. Like, we're really like, we, we achieved self-awareness pretty early. And of course there was still more growth needed, but like, that's how I felt too. Like right away, I was like, God, really? I got to unbraid like it's like a really complicated knot. And now I got to sit here and like figure out how to untie like love and sex and pleasure and trauma and fear and cortisol. And like, like really? Like I just got to sit here doing that. Yeah. Yeah. At that point I'm 17. <laughs> My boyfriend has killed himself and every experience that I've had in the like sexual and romantic space has been highly dramatic. And then you're 18 and you go into like the adult world of dating and it's just like, all right, get out there and start having casual sex and don't be weird about it and don't get attached and don't forget, have fun. Like what? <laughs> like, really? I mean, fuck. And I did like, it was fine. It's fine. But that's a lot. To, that's a lot to ask. And like, actually in hindsight, I actually feel like I dealt with it pretty well. <laughs> like, And I just, the, the way that I've reflected on this and like the place that I've gotten is, is, is I'm, in, I'm happy. I'm, I'm impressed with myself. And I'm, <laughs> I'm impressed with you too. I'm impressed with myself. Oh, there's also this, yeah, there's some sort of statistic with like porn stars where like 90% of porn stars were sexually abused as children. And I get like, but porn stars are basically like the Olympic athletes of fucking so it's like, oh no, this horrible thing happened. And now I'm just really good at coming. There is something to this. If, if we, <laughs> I love your comedy. <laughs> if we take the porn stars out for a second and just say, you know, actually you and I have talked about this, that there is something because so many people have this idea that if you were sexually abused as a child, that you're going to be hypersexual or you're going to, you know, have all of these problems in your sex life. I think it was actually that in and of itself that made me so much more intentional about my sex life. Like I yeah. actually have a, a very specific moment when I was 17. I remember, you know, the flashbacks came back and I was just about to kind of, or maybe I was already in my first relationship. And my first relationship was amazing. It was warm, fuzzy, like me losing my virginity was awesome because I had this moment where I, I thought to myself, okay, I understand why people say that when you were sexually abused, that you can kind of go down this path that just feels because I could feel myself going there of like, okay, well, nothing matters. Like I already, I already had these horrible, you know, kind of sexual in nature experiences. And like, I could just kind of say like, all right, well, none of that matters and just kind of go down this path. Or I could say, actually, I want to only really connect with people that I feel super extra safe with and like desire to be connected with sexually. Yeah. And so that was what I chose. And honestly, you know, sex and sexuality is really important to me. And I think it's probably like being someone who knows that the, the rest of the world thinks this way, wanting to really pay attention to the health of my sex life definitely made me so much better at having a lot of orgasms. <laughs> totally. 
Yeah. But that's the way, that's what I meant earlier when I was like, I you hear like, Oh, like you're screwed. Like you're never going to have good sex. And it's like, actually like, it's going to be fucking great. <laughs> um, but you gotta be super intentional. Like that's, it's like the thing with, um, if you're on dating apps and people, like, someone's like, oh, I don't really know what I'm looking for. It's like, well, then you're never going to find anything. Like you, yeah. the moment that you get super, super, super specific about it, then you like find a thing and it's, it's good. There's also, there's nothing more attractive than a person who's not in conflict with what they want. Yes. So that thing. Yeah. Um, and you and I have, yeah, like you and I have always been pretty good at that. Yeah. But let's go back. There's something I wanted to say about, about kink and like, um, the sex therapist that I saw, like, I don't know, like, cause in the therapist that I saw before her, when I would try to talk about sex or like not, not intentionally re-traumatizing, but like role-playing or like, yeah, like the, the daddy kink that, yeah. Like I had tried to talk about with therapists before then the, about sex or about like wanting to role-play being a little girl. And they're all like, you're re-traumatizing yourself. Here's why that's bad. And essentially you're with that does like when they did that, it was basically like, someone saying, I really like ice cream. And someone decides to come along and say, well, did you know that the only reason you like ice cream is because it reminds you of the day that your mom died? Like, what the fuck? Like, who, why do you, you think you're helping me? Like, is whoever is holding you hostage telling that you are obligated to associate your past trauma with your current pleasure? And how quickly can you get away from that person? Because that person doesn't want you to be happy. Yeah. So if anyone is telling you that like all you're doing is re-traumatizing yourself, whether it has to do with like kink or role play or whatever, that you just it doesn't. It just, and the moment that's the thing is like the moment that I decided that those things don't have to have an association, like that is when the freedom started. And like if I could just transmit that feeling to my younger self or to other people, where it's just like, and who also like who fucking cares like who cares where it comes from or like what makes you come like whatever just don't overthink it well can can we just like put this on the record here because I think that there are a lot of people that need to hear this kink in general but specifically the the daddy little girl kink it's about power and actually no matter what kink you have no matter what kind of sex you're having power is always involved we love to play with power we love to be subversive with power we love to also ignore power when it's convenient for us but if you're intentional about your life and specifically about your sex life you understand the way that power comes into it so just wanting to put it out there that your kinkiness does not necessarily have to do with any of your past experiences or trauma in general. Um, and I think there's this huge association that people have about sexual abuse and like specifically age play or, you know, daddy kink or anything like that. And honestly, you don't have to be traumatized to enjoy those things either. (laughs) So, yeah. And also just like run away from anyone who like insists that those things are associated. (laughs) Yeah. Get away. Yeah. You know, this has happened to me. I don't know if this has happened to you where someone that you're in connection with basically asks you, does your trauma, like, is your trauma related to your kink or your sex life or really kind of making that, drawing that parallel? And I, I don't 
squirm under that question. I'm happy to answer that question. But the assumption that your kink is naturally related to the trauma that you've experienced, I think is really off base. So what do you do when or if someone asks you that? And and what's your response? Do you think that trauma is related to your kink? I think my response is yes, no, whatever, who cares in that order. <laughs> like, and I think that like, if you're, you're, your internal response to that is what's true. So like pick one or figure out where you're at with that. And I don't know. I just think the day that you decide that it doesn't fucking matter could be the best day of your life. (laughs) (laughs) And that's, that's kind of where I'm at with it, where it's like, it just doesn't matter, especially because I've gone through short-term relationships where it just never came up. Uh, I've thrown it out there casually. Usually it's a mistake to not go into detail because that leaves more for someone to like, they're going to fill in the blanks with all sorts of assumptions that you probably, that probably aren't true for you. Mm -hmm. Um, and like usually like in, in the, in the spaces where I've gone into the like heavy intellectual detail (laughs) in like the weird academic way that I think about age and youth and power and that, how that is the impact that it, has on me. Like, I don't know. I had a boyfriend in college who we would get stoned and he would kind of like prompt me to talk about it. And that's where a lot of this came from. Like I would, I, I found the right words because he was just kind of sit, sitting there and listening and like asking like very specific questions. Yeah. And that that's kind of the discovery process, but I don't know. I mean, I don't have a right fucking answer about disclosure. <laughs> I don't think, I think you can't have a, you can't have like a strategy and you can't like decide. I mean, maybe you can, maybe you can decide this is how I'm going to do it every time, but you don't have to, <laughs> you know? And no. I think it's more, I think it's more about, do you want to be seen and understand as a person? Mm-hmm. Not What does this have to do with your sex life? Cause don't draw that association. Right. You know what I mean? Like don't draw it. There is, you don't have to make a linear connection between trauma and kink. That's anti-creative and it kind of flattens the matrix and it's, you know, there's this, there's this metaphor that I've heard when people talk about, you know, the uh, game roulette in, in like casinos where it's, it's just, you have to guess red or black and it's just all fucking random and it's just red or black. And there is no strategy to that game because you can't actually anticipate that there is no, there's no strategy and every role is independent. Like every action, it, it has nothing to do with the thing, thing that came before it and it will have no impact on the thing that comes after it. And like, I don't know if it helps you, if it empowers you to draw an association between kink and trauma, then do it. That doesn't, that's not going to do anything for me. So I don't do it anymore. Um, and when I was encouraged to do it, it kind of ruined my life. Yeah. So <laughs> don't. That's so real. What, what I mean, what was the most supportive thing that partners, friends, I mean, you've talked about part of your discovery or realization process but for anyone who's listening who's not a sexual abuse survivor, but you know, maybe wanting to just show up for someone in your life that that may have happened to, I don't know, what would you say is the most helpful thing? Just don't be weird. Just don't be fucking weird about it. Like, I just, I just, <laughs> just don't be fucking weird. Look, I think like best case scenario, best case scenario, someone like listens and respects you for knowing yourself. That's just best case scenario, you know, 
Also, like, I don't know, maybe I'm only speaking for myself, but it's just like questions are great. And like, I'm not, there's not a single, there's not a single question that I'm afraid of. I am not afraid of any of this. There's not a single detail of it that freaks me out. Absolutely. I feel the same way. I actually really like it when people are curious and ask questions that show that they want to understand or want to know more. Yeah. I do think you can trauma dump. I think don't, I've done, I've done the, like right out the gates. I'm like, here's all of it. (laughs) Here's all of it. I don't think that was the best idea, but yeah. um, I mean, I, I feel like that was also a turning point for me. I remember a time in my life where like my story kind of made sense. It was like this thing, this bad thing happened to me. And then I was 17 and I had the flashback memories and then my best friend killed himself and then da, da, da. And I had this kind of like weird linear story that I would tell people about it. I mean, not at the beginning, once I got to know them a little bit and it felt like something they needed to know in order to understand me. And I oh, think yeah. one, of my, one of my markers for my own evolution and growth was A, when my story got even more complex that I just realized like, my life can't be put into that kind of narrative. And B, when I stopped thinking that other people needed to hear or understand these stories about me in order to be in deep connection with me, because that was my marker for knowing actually these experiences are experiences. They certainly impact me, but they don't, they're not necessary for other people to be able to understand who I am because who I am is so much more vast than that. Yeah. And it's it's really unforgiving to reduce anything to just one experience. Mm -hmm. There's so many more. Yeah. There's so many more things. There's like, like when you listen to interviews with artists or visionaries or people who have like done really cool shit, usually they were aware of and trained themselves in the very conventional way for a while. And then they broke away. That's why so many people who do amazing shit, like drop out of school because they don't need it anymore. And that's essentially what I feel like we can do with healing too. It's like, you know, you go, yeah, try the, try the thing that you're told is, is what works, but break away as soon as you know that you're outgrowing it. And, and that's kind of cool. Like, yeah, it's cool. It's cool to do that. Like, it's, it's cool to be like, this isn't working for me. I'm going to, I'm going to pave my own way. Cause also like creativity is, is whatever you do with the information that you've been given. And that's kind of when I think about this experience is that like, I was just like the information that I received in that experience has created something that is really hyper complex and sometimes probably only makes sense to me, but that's fine. And it is actually really creative and it totally impacts my work and my worldview. But in a way that's really generative. Regenerate is exactly like what is, what is regenerative and what is empowering and like you have to know how you feel before you know whether you're being disempowered or not, I think. And also what strikes me about the way that you did it and the way that you tell your story, and maybe I have an inside lens because of our connection, but I just feel like you had this way of not trying to make it okay. Like, I think that's where we can go wrong with this process sometimes is saying like, no, 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 it's fine. Like, I'm going to be fine. And I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to forgive and I'm going to heal and I'm going to move beyond this and, and like sweep things under the rug, but healing even like in a really creative 
generative way is usually also super messy. And you make all of these connections between all of these different things, the way that you made connections between power and gender and age and sexuality, like it's, it's a messy process. It's not just about like, it's fine. I'm going to be fine. And I'm going to heal. It's also, I think about letting yourself be messy in it and, and break apart sometimes and be really, really freaking angry too. That was certainly part of my process that I didn't do early enough, I think, because of all the narratives that I got around um, forgiveness and compassion and all those things, which are important eventually. Anyways, just what you said about creativity, I think is really important. But also like, I agree, but then something I wanted to say also in this space is that like, (laughs) it's going to be okay but only if you decide, I think if healing, these words like healing and recovery, I think that that confuses people like from knowing what that goal actually is. Cause if your goal is just like, I need to heal, I need to get better. I need to heal. I need to get better. I need to recover. I need to recover. That isn't specific enough. Yeah. And you ultimately, like the times when I like felt like I wasn't okay, or I felt like everything was fucked for me. It's because I believed it's because I believed that it was fucked. I believed that it was never going to get better. And the moment that I decided, you know what, actually, not only is it going to get better, but like, I'm going to have like really great sex and I'm going to have, I'm going to be like really self-aware. Then it became that way. Like it's, it is choose your own adventure. It's, it's, it is what you decide that it is. And that's the responsibility that we were talking about earlier of, yeah, it's not your fault, but you gotta, you gotta figure it out. Just be inextinguishable. Be so committed to having the best experience that that is what it becomes. Because you do have to shape it yourself. You can't sit there or lay there and expect to, for someone else to be giving you the good time that you need to be having. You have to author that. You have to be a creative agent in making that possible. You know, I think one of the most liberating things that anyone said to me about this was um, we actually had a shared healer, uh, Vina, who was a psychic and an energy healer that honestly was better than any therapist that I ever had. And the thing that she said to me about sexual abuse Um, Because I I walked into her office having never like really met her, told her anything about me before. And she said, oh, are are you someone that has a history of of sexual abuse? Like, were you sexually abused? She just knew it about me from the beginning. And she said, there will be a day, Jasmine. I promise you there will be a day where this experience feels like a distant dream, something that you never think of. I mean, not in the sense that it's buried under the rug, but it just doesn't, it's it's not going to matter in your life context. It's not going to mm-hmm. even feel like it's an, it's an important part of your life. And she was right. I did not believe her at the time, but that is how it feels now. Because again, to your point about treating sexual abuse like cancer, we think that it's this crazy like marker that's going to stay with someone forever. And it just doesn't have to like it it is not a defining factor of my life and and neither is trauma survivor I mean I use that label in my work to you know essentially as like a credential that I have I have lived experiences in this but it is not a way that I define myself as a person 
but we, we, we treat it like a disease, not an experience. Yeah. And that's the thing is that's, and that's the thing too. I think it's look, I think with using something like comedy or just yeah, refusing to treat it like cancer, it's the ultimate like genre flip. Like it's the ultimate 180 reversal to, to take something so horrible and to bring a little bit of levity and light to it. Like, I think that's, that is, that's magic. That's what, like, that's why we're here. That's why that's like the transformative qualities of being a creative person. And like, uh, that's why I don't really, I don't like these words like healing or recovery. Cause I don't know if that's what it is. It's just like, whatever you can do to like re- reframe a thing and get on top of it. And like, I don't know. I, I find it's, it's, it is useful to think of it in a sort of a binary way where I think like it will, like it will eat me or I have to eat it. And that kind of keeps me on top of it. Like who's in control. Um, I, maybe that's not what, how some people want to think about it, but that actually kind of helps me. And I also wanted to say about with therapy too, there's almost like, you got to stop thinking about it at some point. Like you got you got to stop. And which is the opposite of what you're told too. Cause you're kind of like, it's like a drug peddling kind of behavior where like when you tell a therapist that you were molested, they're like, okay, well, like you don't, do you want to think of like, you need to think about this all the time. Do you want to think about this all the time? And like, you should think about this all the time. You should think about it every week. You should spend an hour every week thinking about it. Like, oh my God. Yeah. So that they can stay like, in business and have a job. Totally. Yeah. There's like, it's, it's the old, it, yeah, it, it definitely comes down to that. But also it's like, actually you got to stop thinking about it. <laughs> you got to just get out there. You gotta stop. You, you can't just stay there forever. Otherwise, it'll just never, it'll never change. Well, also because I really I trust my body and my nervous system, which also includes my emotions, in what I need to be thinking about feeling and healing in every moment. I, you know how we always talk about how there is no end to healing. I do think that's true to some extent, but I certainly got to a point where I felt like the the bulk of it had been moved through and worked through. There were periods of time in my life where, yeah, my body kind of forced me to be in this intense, extreme, altered state where I was forced to almost relive and move through the trauma. Um, ironically, it was once I was at a time in my life that I felt extra safe because, you know, that's kind of the interesting thing where your body can sense when you are safe. And then it's like, okay, here, like, here's the, the stuff that you've kind of been avoiding. But then at other times it kind of has trickled and, you know, maybe it's, it's just another deeper layer of the onion. Or I remember this moment where I had really been through the bulk of a lot of the the processing around the sexual abuse. And then all of a sudden I had this memory about my father where I missed him so much. And like part of, part of the trauma was that, that, you know, my father only visited me, you know, once, once a year or so. And then the trauma would happen again about once a year or so when he was around me. But there was also this element as a kid where it was like, I just, I would do anything. Like I wanted him to be around me. I wanted to stay in connection with him. And actually the pain of my parents getting a divorce and the pain of not getting to see him was actually more painful to me than the pain of mm-hmm. knowing that I was going to be abused when I was around him. And yeah. it, again, cause this like attachment stuff is really where the, the pain is. And I had this memory. I think I was maybe like 
24 or 25 and it hit me like a ton of bricks and it wasn't like a re-triggering of the the sexual trauma or anything like that it was like oh there's another layer like me missing him like really missing having a father that was so intense so anyways and I trust my body to bring up the things that I'm meant to feel and that I'm meant to heal But that was also a time in my life where I was not spending every day thinking about this or working on my healing. I was doing other shit that was honestly healthier for my healing Mm -hmm. process Mm -hmm. than going to therapy and talking about it. Now you got, and you got to stop licking the wound or the wound's not going to heal. And like, you got to take chunks of time where you don't think about it. Like, you know, I'm obviously I'm very pro introspection, but like, you got to stop looking at the thing at some point. There's also an attachment to like, the objective truth or like the truth of whatever happened, the truth about you as a person, like living your truth, accepting your truth. <laughs> and the thing that I have to say about that is be better than your truth. <laughs> like be better than that. <laughs> like if there is a hard fucked up truth about you, like cons- you do, you have to consume it. You have to invert it. I mean, I know that's kind of binary, but for me, that's the only option, like eat it or it will eat you. Because if the choice is like be destroyed by your past or burn in the crucible and emerge from it, like transform, like take transformation every time, you know, I mean, some people call that creativity. Some people call it like spiritual work, whatever, like it's all the same thing. Just be, you, you have to own it. There's not really another choice. You know, what's interesting as you say that. I think we're talking about the same thing, but might just be using slightly different language. There's that concept of not, um, not overcoming your demons, but actually feeding your demons. And this is kind of something I I talk about a lot in my work is that something that I've found most transformative. I think that the pain is the medicine. And for me, it wasn't until I let myself be completely broken open, like cracked open by the pain that like, for me, that was the, the alchemy for me, Mm. that's the ultimate, like submissive form of domination. (laughs) You know, when those (laughs) two things meet, it's like, I have power over this because I know that I will not be destroyed by this, but I will let myself completely surrender yeah. This experience. And, then, and it's so hard to live like when all therapists tell you is like, this is the worst thing. It's so bad. It's so bad. And you just hear this like over and over again, this is the worst thing. Then if you actually like go into it, it's not, uh, it's not nearly as bad as anyone made it seem. Yeah. And also I never done, maybe this is self-esteem. Maybe this is, um, this just speaks to the, the way, the way I was raised, the sort of like healthy relationship that I have with my parents or whatever. But like, I there isn't a moment that I, like this never felt unrecoverable. It never felt like the awful thing that everyone made it seem. And yeah, I I think that I can credit, maybe not directly those therapists, but like myself, the healthy adult relationships that I did have, all the mentors, the fact that I like, I grew up in an environment where I, I could constantly engage with my creativity and writing, you know, all of those things I think created an environment that lessened the severity of the impact. Yeah. I mean, people tend to treat the childhood sexual abuse as like kind of one thing. All of our experiences are so different from person to person because where we differ too is where, you know, I, I did not experience pleasure because I was three years old when it began. I experienced only terror. 
I did not have a safe home. I did not have other people I could talk to. I lost my entire family when I told them the truth about it. And I was completely isolated with nowhere to go. So like, but I also 100% agree with you. It never felt unrecoverable. In fact, Mm -hmm. if anything, I, I had this moment where I looked up at the sky and I don't know who I was talking to, God, the universe, whatever. And I just said, yeah, do it fucking do it. You can throw anything else. You can throw anything else at me. Bring it on. I'm saying, <laughs> yeah, but th- th- there is a definitely like a inextinguishable kind of fearlessness that yes. like, that's what, like I was in this group of women the other day when they were like, they were talking about someone, the, like the, someone they were seeing wanted her to pee on him and they were all like, Oh no, and I'm like, I'd fucking do it. <laughs> I'm like, I don't give a shit. I'll do any, like, you know, and it's, but that doesn't come from having that. I can tell that that's not coming from a place of like poor judgment or just like not having boundaries. That's not, it, it just comes from like, I'm not going to get freaked out yeah, because I'm not easily freaked out. And, but I don't think it's because of the bad thing. I think it's because of the introspection about the bad thing. Mm-hmm. There's the also um, the approach. There's also a lot of like trauma discourse that I hear that I just get really frustrated with, you know, well, like Instagram slideshow trauma mm-hmm. therapy, TikTok shit, where it kind of like, especially with women in sexual trauma, it just kind of becomes a reason or an excuse to be unhinged and intense in mm-hmm. your relationships in a way that's really not cool. And if the shoe was on the other foot, if it was a man acting like that, you would call for help. Mm -hmm. Like, so I really, I think that I've always had to know where I fell in relation to trauma because so much of the like women's empowerment and like, uh, looking at how we fix inequality or whatever, as just like, here's how angry and fucked up I am. And it's the reason that I get to be crazy. Mm -mm. And we need to turn that fucking corner because I'm like, hold on. If we can do, I don't know, like if you and I can do this, like what we've done with ours, then like you guys need to sit the fuck down and do the work. <laughs> like, Well, it's more that it, it comes back to how are you in your personal integrity? Is it in your integrity to hang the, the trauma badge on your shoulder as a way of saying like, this mm-hmm. means that I can treat people however I want, or this means yeah. that I can, you know, be as whatever as I want to be to me, that is not an integrity. No. And that, I mean, the absolute victimhood that is sometimes like weirdly encouraged online and also with therapists where it's just like, I know if you go to absolute victimhood, you're just going to be flailing around in like a projection nightmare and you're going to feel scared. And it's not because someone's doing anything bad to you. You're just in a, that's the state. Like I see there's so much shit out there right now where I see, I'm like, people are in these like, really you're in a hyper. Okay. You're in a hyper traumatized state. I get it. I've been there, but if all, if you're just in like the reaction spiral, that'll never end. You're, you're creating more of it you're kind of creating the inevitability for more abuse. Like I, I feel this way about a lot of, like I, I sometimes get worried about like the younger, you know, girls who are like currently teenagers or whatever. Cause there's a lot of this rhetoric that's like essentially talking about sexual abuse as if it's completely inevitable and unavoidable. Mm. Um, and sure. Is it, is it overwhelmingly common <laughs> to a scary degree? Sure. 
I think that we're telling young women and girls right now that like, it's going to happen to you. And if you seek it, it's going to, it's going to be, it'll show up and just, you can't live like that. You can't live on edge in that way. And for me, if anything, having had a lot of the experiences that I did and not just the childhood sexual abuse, but, you know, like repeated other kinds of abuse from men, the part of the way that I handled that was, you know, I didn't blame myself for it. I didn't necessarily say ever, you know, this is my fault or I should feel ashamed for this by any means, but in this vein of taking radical responsibility, what it made me want to do is get super, super good at being very communicative mm-hmm. with men yeah. and very communicative, especially in um, sexual settings. I think, I think, oh yeah, there's so much around like consent too, which um, obviously consent is you know, necessary, amazing, but there's a whole other spectrum of things where I just hear a lot of women talk about, you know, well, well, they should have been able to read my body language and they should have known mm-hmm, that I, mm-hmm. I was uncomfortable or they should have. And again, this is a personal, you know, preference or opinion to me. I don't expect men specifically, but other people to read my body language, especially with how many people are also neurodivergent, having their own stuff going on. Like, no, I expect myself to get to a place where I can be super clear about what I want, (laughs) what I need, what I like, what I don't like. I mean, that's important. Yeah. And that, but that's the thing of like, women are like, we need autonomy. We want autonomy. It's like, then be autonomous do it. Like do the thing. There is no like waiting for permission. There's no like special guide. Uh, there's no instruction manual. And like, if you want autonomy, you have to just immediately step into that. And it just doesn't really like, it doesn't help your cause. Like it's not effective to like sit there and, you know, be like, it's someone else's responsibility to do this. There's an inherent relationship yeah, between yeah, yeah. power and responsibility. I don't have and power. If you, want, if you want to feel your own sense of personal power, which you deserve to feel on such a deep level, you have to be willing to take responsibility too. Not responsibility yeah. for someone else's actions, just your own. Yeah. Well, in the responsibility of having a good, you are responsible for having a good time you know, in your own way. Like, like I think about that in sexual relation, in sexual experiences all the time, where it's like, you have to decide that you're going to have fun. (laughs) You know what I mean? And, and there's other, sometimes women will do this thing and they're just talking, like when they talk about orgasms or pleasure, I think there's still this perception, like women think that it's like, oh, it's supposed to be involuntary or it's supposed to like just happen. Or it's something that it's something that someone else does to me. Someone else does to you. No, it's not. And if you don't lean in, like it's, it's, you got to lean in. And if you're not actively participating and also hitting the fucking gas pedal when that's happening, then it's not, yeah. Like having really, really, really good sex is on you, but also, you know what that means? It means that when you have 10 orgasms in an hour, you don't, you know, you don't say like, oh, that person gave me 10 orgasms. No, when, when that happened to me, I was like, I am so good at coming. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That's the thing. Well, I mean, sure. And like, cause the, is it helpful? Like, 
you're, you can throw that other person a bone and be like, you're sure it was helpful, but that's actually all me. And knowing that, like, that is the thing. I don't know. I, yeah, I do wish that's something that women would realize that it's like, no, it's not, it's not really about a specific, it's what you're capable of doing. Um, it's well, it's just came out of dance. It's a collaboration. Body. It's how you relate to yourself. It's how you like, there's so, yeah, there's so many aspects and it is a dance. It is a connection. It's a collaboration. Do you feel, yeah, do you feel connected to the person? Is it the right context? You know, yes, of course there's so many other things, but yeah. But that's, I think that especially with, with sexual trauma. Yeah. I mean, I think like what you just said, yeah. The, like the fact that having good sex is on you and it's your responsibility to participate in. I don't know. I think that freaks some people out. I don't know why, but. I find that one of the most helpful perspectives for me was when I realized the person that you're having sex with wants you to have a good time. Have a good time. Yeah. Like, <laughs> they want you to feel good. And you'd be surprised. I know it sounds simple, but you'd be surprised how many times I've said this to other women and they're like, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah they want you to have a good time that's and they love it when you do um I also think like if you're fucking someone new I think I have a good metaphor for this like I think if you're fucking someone new it's like giving them the keys to your car and if they ask you how to how to drive your car and you say I just want you to figure it out you're essentially letting someone drive blindfolded so when they drive off a cliff, you can't get mad and be like, hey, there's a cliff right there because they didn't know that. Um, that's you. But I don't know if there are cliffs, like you don't have to cover that in caution tape and traffic cones unless you want to. I mean, a cliff doesn't have to be a bad thing. I just think you have to know how to fall slowly and safely off of a cliff with someone who also knows that that's what's happening. If you can get creative with that with either your own internal guidance or the guidance of a friend or with a therapist who can be trauma-informed and not discourage you from doing that. Um, Cause that's the hard thing with, with a lot of therapists is I felt the way that they were framing this experience for me made me more afraid of it. It made me scared to look at it. It made me afraid of the cliffs. And I'm like, but it's not, it's not scary because it's just you now. There might be a past experience that is scary, but it's not now because it it isn't now. And that's not where you are. So therapists could can can sometimes maybe in an in a in an attempt to be sensitive or validating actually make you scared of the thing. Like it's, oh, it's this awful monster in the closet. And it's like, it's it's not, it, it's you. All of it is you. So if you can go into that unafraid, that will be rewarding. And the same thing, I, I remember, I don't do it as, I'm just not as aggressive anymore, but there were, there was a pretty aggressive time in my like early and mid twenties where like on the apps or whatever, I'd be like, just like, here's the thing. Here's what I want. This is what's going to happen. Like, this is what's going down. And it was like a lot of control in a way that like, I actually, I want to, I'm trying to step away from that actually. Um, Cause it is a little defensive, but when I would just like come straight out of the gates with like, here's the thing. Here's what I want. Here's what you're going to do. Like they fucking love that. People love that. 
Yes, because it it takes the ambiguity out of it. You're giving them the green light. You're telling them exactly how to make you feel good. That is one of the most emotionally safe places to be. When you're that communicative, you you kind of create a space where the other person feels, wow. Yeah, because they know that, yeah, yeah. and they know that they're not going to like hurt you because there's no guessing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's true. That's really true. I really want to hear how this has played into your work, your comedy, your humor, your creativity. Like you're an amazing writer and an amazing comedian. Like how does this come into it for you? Yeah. How do I talk about that without like either giving my content away or like talking about things too soon? That's the question. Like, like we're having this conversation sort of like on the cusp of so many things happening for me. It, I I can just say that it is like it. And I always knew that like when I first thought, when I first saw Stand up and sketch comedy, comedy that was really cutting and like really direct. I knew I was like, I got to do it about getting molested. Like, this is like, this is the greatest source of comedy that I will ever have. And I did like, I have like notebooks of jokes or whatever, like retelling it when as early as like being like 18, 19 years old. And I'm like, I know that this is what's funny about it. Yeah. And then just like on a, on a more profound level, I do see that, yeah, that kind of stuff is in my work where it's like, I do, I want to contribute. Yeah. Like I want to contribute to these mind bending conversations that we're having about power, but I feel like the art that's being made, the, the content that's being created about women in power has kind of stagnated for a while. And I think the thing that'll push it in a more interesting direction is to think, yeah, just think a little bit outside of the box with it. So tell us a little bit about your work, what you're working on creatively and where people can find you. Yeah. Well, I just, I just sold a movie. That's cool. Um, yeah. And you're just, it, if you told me like two years ago that I would be on the phone with my uh, attorney and my producer this morning, then I would just be so excited. So it's cool. Yeah. The tide is sort of, tur- I mean, I'm on the, I'm on the sort of edge, but with being a writer, being on the edge means that you spend three years being on the edge <laughs> before anything happens. So I'm in that space. It's, um, it's good. I mean, I have, I have two pilots that are in development with production companies sold my movie and yeah, the, there is, there is a project that I hope to share with, with you and everyone else one day that totally has to do with not this subject, but with a lot of the age, gender, power stuff that I talk about, um, which I don't think has to, a lot of it doesn't have anything to do with necessarily sex. It's just, it's a worldview. It's a perspective. It's a way of looking at being female and I'm created something exciting and dramatic that captures that theme. Uh, that I hope to <laughs> talk about with less ambiguity in the future. But for mm-hmm. now, that's kind of all I have. I don't tweet anymore. You if you want to see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Glamorous Reptile on Twitter. Um, that's like my archive of stuff. But yeah, I kind of, st- I, I, I took a little, I took a step back from the online stuff. Yeah, that, that changed. And now I, because now I write full length screenplays and pilots and that's how I spend my time instead of like making strangers laugh on the internet for free. Uh, pay mm-hmm. me. <laughs> that's right. Hey, <not. laughs> bitch. Yeah, but I don't know. I just also want to say that, like, you've the, the reason you you were a really important conduit for a lot of the stuff that I can reflect on now with this 
because it's the it's the convert it's the voice memos that we leave each other in the middle of the night and the nuance that you dig into and your ability to just like ask me a really straightforward question and look me in the eyes like on your unflinching thing like when you you're looking at people and you're like I'm gonna ask you a really challenging question and then just stare at you (laughs) that's it's your gift no but it's it's why people it's it's why some people are intimidated by you and others are gravitate towards you. I'm not intimidating. Um, they are intimidated. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and um, it lends itself well to having a podcast where you get to ask people really cool questions. But I really yeah. particularly appreciate guests like you who, um, you know, of course, we have a history, we're friends, but you have this element to you where you have always, no matter what context you're in, show up with the full like reality of what you think and feel about something, which is usually well thought out, well researched. Um, and you just, you know, show up full force, unafraid of offending anyone. And that just is, that just is the energy that we need in this world. Thanks dude. I think so too. And I just think that like, you got it. We talked about a lot of stuff today and, but the, the center of it, I, I just hope that like the takeaway isn't abuse or even healing it. What we've talked about today is self-knowledge and self-awareness. And the fact that like, you have to know your shit inside and out because you can't just walk around the world expecting other people to figure that out for you or treat you with the care that you need unless you like vocalize it. Yeah. So you got to know. And that's like, and you know, the, the, the developing the instinct to go within when you're challenged with something and not impulsively just outsource and like demand that somebody else help you figure it out. Like you gotta, you gotta go in, go in and like fucking invest, dig that shit up. Cause it's so rewarding. It's so rewarding. And like you, I I know that you know what I mean. And I don't know if other people, I don't know if other people know what I mean, because I think a lot of people don't do that. I think that introspection terrifies a lot of people. I think that thinking about the multiple complex beliefs that like, don't really, you can't reckon with that the human brain can't <laughs> make any sense of like intense traumatic experience. Like there is no sense. There is no, there is no way to logic your way out of any of this. You and people are just scared it. of it. I would Do say it. maybe like another way of saying that is don't treat yourself like you're fragile. You're not fragile. Yeah. You got this. You can handle this. Human beings were made to process and move through immense trauma. Mm-hmm. You are part of this human collective consciousness that has immense resilience. You are not yeah. breakable. You got this. And don't doubt and don't listen to people who are like, this is unrecovered. You're never going to get over it. Fuck that. Fuck that. Fuck that. The freedom in not giving a fuck anymore like and just not so not there's so much pleasure inside that something you said earlier the most attractive people the most attractive thing you can do is not be in conflict with what you want yes and that doesn't just apply to like sexual stuff that's all of it jobs everything 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 I'm so grateful to you for being here. I also have something for you to take with you. 
It's a workbook and meditation bundle called Reclaiming All Parts of You. I created it as someone who really resonates with moving through a lot of shame, insecurity, and self-doubt to really tackle these issues so that you can stop hiding and feel free to express more of you. The link to that is in the description below. It's free. You can just sign up with your email. And if you loved this episode or this podcast, please let me know. I would love it if you left me a review on Apple Podcasts. Let me know what you liked and how it supported you. And I love hearing from you in general. So if you have a question for me or want me to talk about a specific topic on this podcast, send me an email and let me know. Until next time.